while we're standing, I won't have you stand while I read everything, but let me read uh, just the poem, I think, because this is so special. In Ecclesiastes 3, I'll read just a portion of what we'll be covering today. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your having created us, and we pray, Lord, that you would make us aware of our times. We thank you now for this word, and we pray that you would open our ears to hear your spirit speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, while you're comfortable, I'll read a little bit more. Our text, actually, for today starts in chapter 2, at verse 24, and I'll read that last portion of chapter 2, and then I'll skip ahead to verse 9 where we left off, and I'll read through the end of chapter 3. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. Now, I'm going to read verse 25 a little differently. For who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment apart from him? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, Concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? 
So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him. I have some reference material today. Last week we talked about the first 41 verses from 1.1 to 2.23. The title of the message was Vain Repetition. We introduced what I believe is a good summary statement of all of Ecclesiastes, and that is a man's got to know his limitations. I was corrected in my perspective. That's not from a Clint Eastwood Western. It's from a Clint Eastwood Harry, uh, Dirty Harry movie. And I had the two guys that are those guys that have their smartphones with them correct me after the service. Thankfully, they waited till after the service. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, that statement about man knowing his limitations is conveyed in two primary thoughts in Ecclesiastes, and it actually uh, splits the book in two at 6.10. First, man is limited in his ability, and that is captured by the phrase, the repeated use of the phrase, grasping for the wind. That is man's inability to do what he wants, to accomplish on this earth what he wants. And then the second half, man is limited by his knowledge, and that is he cannot know repeatedly in the second half. It talks about man's inability to know or to understand, to foresee. Today's title, as opposed to vain repetition, is purpose and meaning. We will cover a lot of text. It's 25 verses, not as much as last time, but still quite a bit. And where I chose to start and end may be a little odd at 224 and go through the end of 3, Uh, What I've found is that most people don't preach on this particular portion, it seems. Uh, But also, in these 25 verses that I've read, we could easily have half a dozen sermons. It's difficult to discipline myself, to not want to just break it down into smaller chunks. But just like last time, last time we were at, let's say, 25,000 feet flying over Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Now we've dropped it down to maybe ten or 12,000 feet, but we're still wanting to see forests, not, not so much trees. And so I think to really understand Ecclesiastes, you have to understand the big picture. It's all about the big picture. Now, last week, it was just repeatedly stated, hammered into us, Solomon's view of everything, labor, work, everything, all of his works, all of his attempts at finding meaning in life, as vanity. He found life to be meaningless. And yet, in our text today, it's really just the opposite. He's done a total reversal. Let me just give you an illustration of this by talking about uh, a few excerpts from last week versus this week concerning his view on labor. If you turn to Ecclesiastes 2, starting at verse 17, let me read a few verses, and I'll skip down to 22, actually. Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. For what has man for all his labor, for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? All his days are sorrowful, and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity." That is the Solomon of last week under the 
title, Vain Repetition. Here is the Solomon of this week. And I'll start reading at chapter 3, verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? This is almost the exact question he asks right at the beginning of chapter 1. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Skip to 12. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. He referred to work last time as a burdensome task laid upon man by God. Now, how does he view it? Totally differently. It's a beautiful gift that he's given. In vain repetition, in that section, I'll just refer to it as vain repetition in today's as purpose and meaning. In vain repetition, he hated life. He mentioned work in a positive light twice, but he mentioned work in a negative light 11 times. In the text I read today, 25 verses, he mentions work and labor in a positive light seven times, and he doesn't mention any negatives about work. Now, let me clarify. When we talk about labor and work, he talks about eating, drinking, laboring, working. He's talking about life. This is, I believe the uh, literary term is metonymy. It's when you use one little word or phrase to really typify all of this. It's when we refer to the president and, and everything the executive power does, we refer to that as the White House. That's metonymy. The same thing is true here. He just labor, and it's everything, really. It's all of life. But he focused on the labor because I believe that's where Solomon personally felt he would find ultimate value apart from God, and yet he failed to. He calls work burdensome, profitless, meaningless, and distressing in the vain repetition section. And yet, here, three times, he refers to it as nothing is better. Nothing is better. And it's actually in our first verse of our text, it's in the last verse of our text, and it's in the middle. It's in 224, it's in 312 and 322. Nothing is better. In each of those sections, he uses the word joy or rejoice. He is happy about this now. Whereas last week, he was in despair. In the military, we have a term for that. It's called about face. You're all facing one way, and the command is barked out about face, and you all turn around in unison. That's what Solomon did. He did an about face. Now, I believe he did the about face at 224, where he, uses, where he introduces the first phrase, nothing is better. I think, as a matter of fact, that if I were to devise chapters and verses, I would start chapter 3 at verse 24, not at where we did with the poem about time, there being a time for everything. Uh, Stephen Langton is the man that did this. He became the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 13th century. And yet, he did a lot of cool stuff, and I, I believe we agree with him in many, many of these, but that's just one where I would believe it's a little off. And everybody uh, would have different places where they would think, oh, this is a little off or that's a little off. In other words, the chapter titles and the verses, they're not part of the inerrant word of God. They were added later just for our convenience. Vain repetition. 
last week contained frustration, cynicism, bitterness, despair. But today is different. Today's title is Purpose and Meeting. Purpose and Meaning, and we'll find both of them in the poem. That's why I chose to read that first. We're going to begin with the poem as opposed to starting with that end of section two and then beyond the poem. But let's start with these eight verses, three, three, one to eight. This is a very famous poem in Scripture. And as a matter of fact, when I came in, uh, I was asked if I recognized the song that was playing. Larry was playing a, a, a time. It's by the birds from 65. Turn, turn, turn. There's a time. Turn, turn, turn. And uh, I'd actually heard that in a lecture that I'd listened to in the last couple of weeks concerning Ecclesiastes, and I didn't really uh, intend to integrate it into the talk, but a lot of us have heard that song, Turn, Turn, Turn. And I'm glad he brought it up because it is very likely that nearly everybody that listens to that song doesn't understand what it's really saying. Why? because it's been ripped out of context. Just like I did when I chose to begin with reading just that portion, those eight verses. I wanted to rip it out of context, have you focus on that, and then put it in the context of what I believed is its proper context. First, the title of the message is Purpose and Meaning. Both of those words are appropriate to this. Now, purpose and meaning, you might think of them as synonyms. You probably can, in many cases, view them as synonyms, but... I believe there's a very good difference between them that I want to differentiate on. First, the details of our poem. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this, not a time for that. All of that is about finding meaning. Meaning in day-to-day life. All of the many things that we do that denote meaning. But overarching these eight verses is a premise that you might not even think to think about. That's purpose. In other words, if there's meaning in these little day-to-day things about a time for this and a time for that, it's telling us that overall there's purpose. So see, the concept that the detail is implementing is purpose. There's an overall purpose, so therefore in all these little nuances there's meaning. Let's talk about purpose. We don't see it clearly. We seldom even see it. And I say we cannot see it. And what I'm speaking of is our purpose. Now, I know you can recite me question one of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? But that is just a parrot of response, right? If you look at your life, what is the purpose of your life, your life, your life, your life? Do you know? Can you write a book that has chapter and verse about the purpose of your particular life? I don't think any of us could do that. It is a mystery to us. Our own lives are mysteries to us in many ways. But God knows. God knows. Phil faces this every year because every year we have the Providential History Festival. And we all think we understand Providence until we try to get a recommendation past that man. (laughs) 
It's hard to see the providence of God. And we're looking back in history, sometimes hundreds of years, and we still wrestle with applying and understanding what it was that God wanted out of this. And I would add, we can't understand a tenth of it. There's a show that I love called Connections. Have you ever seen that show where this guy connects all these things together? He's just taking one thread of how things connect. But how many threads are there? We don't even know how many threads there are. They're infinite from our minds, from our finite minds. But again, God knows. God knows how all this stuff interconnects. Our lives are ultimately understood only by God. So we have purpose. We know we have purpose. We just can't clearly articulate it, the details of it. Now, I want you to notice in 3.11 what is said. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. Oh, let's put the period there. How can you top that? You can't. That's why there's a comma. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, comma, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Ah, oh, God is always just sticking it in us and twisting it, isn't he? He just isn't content to let us feel so wonderful about ourselves because he knows how proud we would become. He knows how arrogant we become. He knows how independent we would become, seeking meaning apart from him. So that's purpose. That's why these eight verses exist. Just there is a premise behind this that says you have a purpose. Now we get to meaning. The details of this poem speak to the meaning of life, the nuances of life. There is purpose to our lives that only God knows. Yet he has applied to our world proprieties that we are to exercise. All of these statements, a time to this, a time to that, a time to this, what is it saying? that there are rules governing earthly behavior. And we are to abide by those rules. Day-to-day -day life is filled with myriad decisions. We all face them. We have things affect us. We ourselves affect others. All of these things result in all of these threads, all of these connections that connect us with everything and everybody. Some are so very small that only you know about them. No one else knows about them but you. Some are so large that they affect whole nations. They affect everybody. When we talk of, for instance, healing, there's a time to heal. That that is healing could be so tiny and insignificant in you. Only you're aware of it. It could be a real cut or boo-boo. It could be an emotional cut or boo-boo that only you know about. It's inside of you. You are healing from that. No one else even knows. You might not even know. But God knows. There's purpose. There's meaning. And then, too, the large scale, such things as war and peace. There is a time for war. There's a time for peace. God is not a pacifist. There is a time for war. And the people that believe there isn't, that there never is, are blatantly in violation of Scripture. There is a time for war. There is a time for peace. These are the big ones. These are the ones that affect everybody, that affect so many of us. But everything else, those things that just you know about, those things that affect everybody, everything else is in the middle. 
things that affect us in little groups, especially your family, your church, your coworkers, your neighborhood, all of these things that affect us. It's recorded right here, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up. You could, you could view these as specifics, or you could also view them as metaphors, metaphors for other things, like, for instance, build up, break down. That could easily be a house, a wall, a barn, but it could be you as a person. When, it, when you go into the boot camp, they say, we're breaking you down. It's meant as a metaphor. They're going to take all of that that you feel you can bring into the core, they're going to knock it out of you. They're going to put into you what they want in you. That's called building you up. There are all of these in-between ones. You know, there are times to embrace, times to dance. My times to dance are few and far between. But Emily, Bill, Krista, their times to dance are far more common, far more. I loved watching them here at the reception Tuesday. They're just so joyful out there dancing on that floor. And so my time to dance is not your time to dance, but yet there is a propriety here that, has, that is at work, isn't there? There are rules by which God regulates us and expects us to regulate ourselves. When I was in the service, uh, twice I qualified at the rifle range. And you have, and I've used this illustration once before, I think, but you have the butts that they're called, where all the targets are way down there. And then you have three different lines that are 100 yards away, 200 yards away, and 500 yards away. And when you get out there to those lines, you just have these pads that extend off in the distance quite a ways. Our rifle range, I think, was maybe 50 or 60 wide, maybe more, maybe 100. But you then line up on your site. Well, imagine, if you will, Rod Serling's interpretation. Imagine, if you will, that instead of having this long, just uh, big paths of grass between you and your targets, that you have this pool. We're all standing here. We're all lined up. All of us have our own little lanes, and you've got this pool of water, this calm water that extends off into the distance. And all of these little things about life are constantly happening, and they're like little pebbles that fall into your pool, disrupt your world. Some good, some bad, but there's this huge pile of pebbles that you have. And other people, they can not only toss pebbles in their pool, they can toss pebbles in your pool. They affect you. We all affect one another. Then over here, you've got these bigger pebbles. Over here, you've got these mountain of little ones. And over here, you've got you select piles, and you've got some that are just really, really big. Death of a loved one. So see... When you experience the death of a loved one that's dear to you, boom, and that water's all turbulent, and it's all... Are you feeling now the effects of the little pebbles that keep hitting? No. They're meaningless to you. You don't even know they exist. Boom, boom, boom. Until that water calms down, it's not going to happen. You're not going to feel it. And some people don't come back from such things very cleanly. And I believe it's more like they don't want to. And so instead of seeking the peace and the calm eventually through, through healing, they just keep throwing it in there. They, they just pick up the rocks themselves and toss them in. They do not want to forget that feeling because they feel that it is to abandon that loved one. And so they just keep disturbing it themselves. So therefore, they remain impervious to the other little things of life that most all of us are affected by, yet they're not. Uh, there was a book, and it became a movie, and it's titled The Legend of Bagger Vance. 
and it's about a promising young golfer in 1917. Over the past year or two, he's won all these tournaments all over the South. He's from uh, uh, Savannah, Georgia. He goes off to war, World War I in Europe. He leads a lot of the other young men from town because he's just a natural leader. Everybody looks up to him. But in a battle in World War I over in France, he ends up surviving when everybody that he took from his town died. Everybody in his unit dies. So he returns alive, but he doesn't want to be alive, and so he leaves. He runs away, and so he's gone for over 10 years. He comes back, though, for some reason. And right at the time he comes back, his former girlfriend, fiance perhaps even, uh, has been trying to uh, resurrect her father's famous golf uh, uh, championship course from uh, debt because now the Great Depression is on. They talk him into playing in a tournament, even though he couldn't care less about this game. It just, you know, it doesn't make a dent because he's suffered all of this tragedy and he can't feel it. And so in the middle of the movie, towards the end, he, you get this penultimate climax where he is arguing with this young boy who is the one that originally talked him into doing this and he tells him it's just a game. It's just a game. And in other words, he's saying, how can you take this seriously when, you know, when you've gone through what I've gone through? What's interesting, though, is that he's in the championship. He comes back from near defeat. He's on the 18th hole, the last one. They're all tied up. He's actually ahead by a stroke, and he moves a leaf from his ball, and the ball rolls away about an inch. Now, that's a penalty in golf. He sees it. He looks over. The little boy sees it, and his caddy sees it. And the little boy says, no, don't tell anybody. He says, I have to tell. So he calls a penalty on himself. He calls one of the league officials over, and he calls a penalty on himself. Then the caddy, who had been kind of like his spiritual guide through this movie, he chooses that moment to leave. He's like, you don't need me anymore. What happened? What happened in that moment? He felt one of these smaller pebbles finally hit that pool. In other words, all of that tragedy that he'd suffered, he'd finally, finally let it go because he could see that it was important. Just something as simple as moving a leaf has now affected him. And I use that illustration to lead to another one, and that is this uh, suicide note that Daniel Summers wrote. Has anybody read that in the last three weeks? Some of us have read it. Uh, Daniel Summers was a soldier that killed himself on June 10th, and he had spent four years in, F in Iraq. But I guess on his first tour, he had participated in what he calls atrocities, and he never came back from that. And yet, in his very eloquent 1,500-word suicide note, he doesn't mention God at all. All he mentions is the emptiness that he feels each day and how he just cannot continue doing this, and so he killed himself. So see, Daniel's, Summers, Daniel's worldview, it was entirely logical to kill himself, entirely logical, because he viewed death 
as a release from the prison of this life. And for him, perhaps it was. Without faith in God, he was living in a prison. He didn't see hope. He didn't see an absolution of the guilt that he felt by killing these people in Iraq, apparently in an inhumane way. Only God can resolve guilt like that in us, and he could not face that anymore. But what's interesting is in his suicide note, he essentially takes pride in that. He said, I don't know how these other people can continue living with that guilt, but I, for one, have to end it. So he judged himself. He was no longer worthy of life in his own opinion, and so he killed himself. So see, Daniel gave no thought to God, and he viewed death as a sweet release. Let me read to you how he ends this letter. This is what brought me to my actual final mission, not suicide, but a mercy killing. I know how to kill, and I know how to do it, that there is no pain whatsoever. It was quick, and I did not suffer. And above all, now I am free. I feel no more pain. I have no more nightmares or flashbacks or hallucinations. I am no longer constantly depressed or afraid or worried. I am free. I ask that you be happy for me for that. It is perhaps the best break I could have hoped for. Please accept this and be glad for me. In a secular material world, such as many of our friends and neighbors and loved ones live in, what he did is incredibly logical because he does not recognize God and he did not want to live any longer. So he ended his life. Now, Solomon, I believe, in the section that we covered last week that was titled Vain Repetition, was on the cusp of that. He was despairing of life. When he says, I hated my labors, I hated my life, that's not exaggeration. He felt that. It was like that for him. Now, how did Solomon come back from the brink of feeling like that? How can he go from where nothing has meaning to where everything has meaning? And he can write that poem about there being a time for everything. Where do we acquire such beliefs? Let me read the first portion of our text that we read today, starting at 224. Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment apart from God? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner... He gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Nothing is better. Solomon is stating an absolute. Nothing is better. I saw it was from the hand of God. Another unequivocal statement. Who can eat or who can drink more than apart from God? God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man. Now, all of these are statements of absolutes. They're statements of fact that Solomon is sharing with his readers. And Solomon goes on to distinguish between belief and unbelief. 
And he says, it is God that has done this. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and collecting such that it will then be given to the righteous. It ends with vanity and grasping for the wind. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. But what does it refer to? It's referring to the life of the unbeliever, the life spent in a meaningless fashion, like Daniel Summers spent his life. Now, where did Solomon gain this knowledge, this confidence? Obviously, by faith from God. In the 41 verses that were under the title Vain Repetition last time, God was mentioned once. And it was when he burdened man with life. God was seen as an enemy, as a bad guy in that first portion. But here, in these 25 verses, God is referenced five times, or 12 times, and every time in a positive light. In 25 verses, he's mentioned 12 times, always positively. Under vain repetition, you have the words of a scientist that intentionally ignored God in the pursuit of wisdom. Yet, in the words we read today, you have the words of a covenant son that knows God, that loves God, that serves God. Now let's skip to after the poem in chapter 3, and I'll start at verse 11, and I'll read uh, through verse 15. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them, them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. There are two emphases here at play that I want to draw out. First, God is the sovereign creator and answers to no one. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has placed eternity in our hearts. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. All those unequivocal statements about the power and sovereignty of God. But listen to what he says about man. No one can find out the work that God does. Nothing can be added to the work of God or taken from it. God requires an account. So see, just in those uh, five verses, you just see this, this seesawing back and forth of honoring and elevating God and humbling man. Solomon has come to accept his place in God's world. In verses 16 and 17, Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. In other words, our world is tainted. Solomon knows it's tainted. It concerns him. It disturbs him. But, but, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time there for every purpose and for every work. When you see that he says there is a time there for every purpose and every work, uh, many commentators regard the there as heaven, that this is judgment that we're speaking of now. And so Solomon is learning patience to wait. Even an all-powerful king like him is still upset by what he sees as inefficiencies because even if he's a great king, 
he would still have people under him that are not great managers. And so he's having to deal with this inability to do all that is in his heart, to make it right. Now, verses uh, 18 to 21, though, get a little odd. And you might think that there's a relapse here on the part of Solomon. Now, I'd mentioned the gathering and collecting in 226, that it is the sinner that is gathering and collecting. In verse 16, we see, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. But yet, we are told that God has placed eternity in our hearts, right here by Solomon. Yet, Paul said in Romans that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So see, that's what Daniel Summers has had to do for 30 years of his life up until he committed suicide three weeks ago. He has had to suppress the truth that God has revealed to all humans on this earth that he exists and he has placed eternity in our hearts. We know there's a hereafter, but we reject it because we reject God. Peter refers to false teachers in 2 Peter as brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. So you see, when I say that there's purpose and meaning in life, it's only as a believer, only as a believer. Vain repetition, meaninglessness corresponds with unbelief. Purpose and meaning corresponds with belief. And so throughout Ecclesiastes, that, that's what you'll see. That is the war that's going on, the war between faith and faithlessness. In verse 21, Solomon asks a rhetorical question. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? I say it's rhetorical because I believe at this point Solomon knows the answer. He knows there's a distinction. But like I said during the part on purpose, only God knows. We can know these vague truths but we don't know it in the day-to-day, minute-to-minute thing. We rely upon faith for that. We have faith in God because he understands we don't have to. Last week, Solomon railed, railed against his inability and his ignorance. He desperately wanted to be like God. But God wouldn't let him. He doesn't let any of us. That's why wanting to be like God leads us to bitterness. This week, Solomon is at terms with it. He's at terms with his creatureliness. Now, I don't want you to believe that he is comfortable with his limitations. He's not. Nor are any of you. Nor am I. I don't think God expects us to be entirely content with our limitations. He's made us in His image. When we see a wrong, we want it righted. But God has withheld that power from us because we're tainted by sin. Also, we're finite creatures. Even if we were entirely holy, had never fallen in the garden, we still would be very limited in our ability. There are things that we cannot do. There will forever be things that we cannot do or know. So we might not like those limits, but they're there. They're an aspect of how God has made us. We have to be at peace with them. And that's what Solomon is. He made peace with his limitations. Let me borrow a phrase. We have fallen, 
and we can't get out. God must help us up. We have fallen and we can't get up. Not on our own. Never on our own. God must help us up. I want to close by reading what, for many of you, I'm sure the first phrase is very common. I'm sure most of you have heard it. But there is another portion, and I want to read the entire thing. It's known as the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did, Jesus, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for who you are and what and who we are not. We pray, Lord, that you would make us accept our limitations. Because we want what we want, Lord, we pray that when we have good wants that are beyond our abilities, we will convey them to you in our prayers because you long for us to want to be like you in this regard, to want to change our world, to want to make it better, not only for ourselves in a selfish way, but for everyone in a very selfless way. So we pray, Lord, that you would uh, operate in our hearts, uh, grant us a willingness to see our sins and what prevents us from being who it is that you would have us to be. And, Lord, to cast those all upon you. We thank you for the illustration of Solomon, for the life that he lived, even for the illustration of Daniel Summers, who has poured his life out at 30 years of age uh, to the uh, altar of meaninglessness, the meaninglessness of all who leave this earth without knowing you, without uh, bowing before you, and without having their life to have purpose because of you. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, save all present, that you would enter into their hearts and convict them of sin. Not enough just to suffer from human guilt, but weigh them down, Lord, we pray. Uh, Make them to see that you alone, Christ alone, is the answer. We thank you now, Father, and we ask you to Uh, bless us in our lives. We ask you that we would enjoy our lives. It is a gift from your hand. We thank you for this gift. In Christ's name, amen.